Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chapter 40 Lizzie is finally able to tell Jane about Darcy's proposal. Jane is not surprised that Lizzie has caught the attention of anyone. Her dear sister does have a pleasing figure and fine eyes. And although Jane feels bad for Darcy about the rejection, she understands why Lizzie did it. But when it comes to the accusations about Wickham, Jane is shocked. Her ingenue heart just can't handle the truth. But Lizzie demands that Jane accept that Wickham isn't who they thought he was. The sisters debate whether they should warn the neighborhood about what they have learned. They decide together not to tell anyone about Wickham. And Lizzie decides privately not to tell Jane about how Bingley actually loved her all along. In Chapter 41, all of the Bennett women and much of the greater area are heartbroken because the military is leaving town for Brighton. Only Lizzie and Jane can keep themselves from sobbing about it, although we do not get an update about how Mary feels. But Lydia gets invited to Brighton by Mrs. Foster and starts running around the house, quote, laughing with violence about the whole thing. Where in the past Lizzie might have rolled her eyes or laughed at Lydia, now she is seriously concerned about the reputation of her sister and her family. Lizzie goes to Mr. Bennett, trying to convince him that they cannot let Lydia go to Brighton. Mr. Bennett says not to worry. Lydia is too poor to really get into trouble in Brighton. And he says, quote, Lydia will never be easy until she has exposed herself, and we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as under the present circumstances. Lizzie is highly unsatisfied with this response. The chapter points not only to Lydia's shortcomings, but to Mr. Bennett's as well. Here is Miriam Burstein on Mr. Bennett. Yeah, I mean, he's a totally absentee father. He's often, as we're told, what does he want to do? He's off in his library. Lizzie admits to herself that no, no matter how much she loves her father, that the way in which he relates to his family is actually pretty bad, right? He is openly contemptuous of her mother. And she 
realizes that he should not be doing that, right? Because that reduces her in the eyes of their children. He is openly nasty to his kids. He does not respect his children as children who can be cultivated. You know, except for Lizzie and to a lesser extent Jane, he really treats them all as they have no minds. They, there is nothing I can teach them. He doesn't engage in any kind of paternal moral instruction, right? He doesn't exert any moral authority over his children. He's willing to just let Lydia go off. And even though Lizzie warns him that this is going to be a terrible idea, he refuses to assert his authority where a family of this period would expect the father to exert authority, that the kind of relation to other people that he models is actually really negative. And his daughters, in various ways, have picked up on that. Mr. Bennett's unwillingness to parent frustrates Lizzie, although she eventually resigns herself to the fact of it. At least the militia is going to leave town, and with it, it'll take Wickham. Lizzie does have to see Wickham one last time before he goes. And during their meeting, she makes it as clear as she can without saying so that she has learned what a twerp he is. Wickham is a bit panicked at the idea that she might know more than she's letting on, but they both seem to agree to not touch the live wire of truth before the militia and Lydia head south to Brighton. Kitty stays behind in tears. In chapter 42, we learn about the Bennetts' marriage. Everything implicit in the last chapter about Mr. Bennett as a failed father becomes painfully explicit in Lizzie's mind in this chapter. Here is Susan Zlotnick on Lizzie's continual change as a character. It's really interesting. There's a, um, and I can't even remember, this is now being old, I can't remember the name of, it might be Clifford Siskin is the literary critic who says this, is that all realist characters and what we kind of nominally understand as realist characters, which is kind of like the characters who inhabit 19th century novels. One of the reasons we think they're real and have that kind of three-dimensionality is because they change. That, that That growth is for us a sign of realism, which is interesting because that's a construct, right? A lot of people are real people who never change, right? But nonetheless, we kind of ascribe that to realism. So one of the ways in which Pride and Prejudice feels like a realistic novel, meaning that the characters have verisimilitude, is that Elizabeth starts the novel fairly self-confident, right? That she is very assured that she is right, and that she's very sure that the most important thing is her individual happiness, right? But over the course of the novel, and this is what makes it a Bildungsroman, she realizes the limitations of that individualism. And she realizes it at that moment when she gets the letter. She starts the novel self-confident, a laughing playmate with her father. But now she sees him and her whole family differently through the eyes of Mr. Darcy. Dispatches from Lydia keep pouring in, mostly via Kitty, who won't share the news from the letters that she receives. And Lizzie is getting ready for her trip with the gardeners. They were supposed to go to the Lake District, but the trip has been cut short due to some work obligations that popped up for Mr. Gardner. So they decide to only go as far as Derbyshire, where Mrs. Gardner wants to visit Pemberley. 
The gardeners and Lizzie head off on their trip. Once they are outside of the grounds of Pemberley, Elizabeth asks the chambermaid if Darcy is in town. It is only when the chambermaid says Darcy is out of town that she consents to go to Pemberley. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And we are officially almost live from Pemberley, from Hot and Bothered. Next episode, we will be live from Pemberley. So Lauren, we are off to Pemberley, but Lydia and Wickham are off to Brighton. Oh, Brighton. Or as Noel Coward said... Ah, dear Brighton, peers, queers, and racketeers. So, obviously, Brighton is not an accidental choice of place. The military could have gone to any place where the military would go in that time. But, no, they go to Brighton because what happens in Brighton stays in Brighton. Brighton was long considered the place where one would go to misbehave, where things would maybe be a little shady and a little dangerous and a little more fun than you would let on at home. In part because, you know, it was like ground zero for French invasion through the 1600s and 1700s. So there was a real sense of danger and with enlisted men came a certain degree of hedonism. And this is a hedonism that really appealed to the Prince Regent, later George, who found court life in London to be just such a drag and yearned for sexual shenanigans and just other bad behavior. And he found it in Brighton. And that, around the time of the publication of Pride and Prejudice, is where he began building the Brighton Pavilion, a pavilion of, you know, bizarro colonialist architecture. Maybe you've seen it before. There's some of India and there's some of China and there's some of the Regency. And that was his his palace of pleasure, essentially. But these notions of Brighton as being where people go to act out in exactly the way that Lydia might desire or perhaps far beyond what Lydia might desire they would go to Brighton. And frankly, many people still do. This is obviously where the Who read their Vespas through for Quadrophenia and where there's like a really big, fun gay scene in England now. So that's Brighton and that is where Lydia's going. Would Lydia have known this or is she just like, the militia's going and I'm following? Like, would Lizzie have known? My sense is that they would have known that it was a wonderful place to go to bathe, like a beautiful Mm -hmm. beach town. And at the time, that was considered to be a real health-giving thing to do, to to sort of take the waters in that way, the brinier, the better for your health. But I think that the sort of the libertine aspects of, of the town are not necessarily something that would have been made so public. But honestly, I don't really know. So, Lauren, I'm really curious because, you know, Lizzie and Mr. Bennett have this argument, like this real fight about whether or not Mr. Bennett should intercede and prevent Lydia from going. And I think that at first we're sort of led to believe that Mr. Bennett just sort of doesn't care. And then we find out that he actively is making a choice in letting Lydia go. He is saying, like, essentially that she's a puppy who's going to tire herself out and that she's going to get in over her head. She's going to be humiliated. And then she'll have been humbled and she's actually going to return to us humbled, but not injured. 
And Lizzie obviously disagrees with that. And so in the argument, she pushes back. But then Mr. Pennant says this thing, and I'm really curious to what you mean about it. He says, the officers will find women better worth their notice. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. At any rate, she cannot grow many degrees worse without authorizing us to lock her up for the rest of her life. And Mr. Bennett is so tongue-in-cheek that I think that the first dozen, dozen and a half times I read this book, I thought he was joking. And it is probably because you and I are coming off of reading Jane Eyre that I am more like primed to see this. But I mean, he does say authorized to lock her up. And we are also finding out in this chapter and the next one, how like negligent to the point of abuse he is as a father, right? Like this is not just like, uh, you know, Liz, a fair parenting. This is like, let her go and humiliate herself. I'm wondering what you make of this. We'll have no choice but to lock her up sentence. Well, first to address the humiliate herself part. It's tricky because these chapters have a lot of foreshadowing in them, right? You know, he's saying this terrible thing about locking Lydia up. And yet I think that what he is imagining is that she thinks that she'll show up, be the bell of the ball, be the center of attention. And in fact, she's just going to be some like kickabout kid who is not exactly garnering the interest that she's fantasized about and that she'll sort of come back with her tail between her legs, feeling quite rejected and actually appreciating the comforts of her more small town life. I don't think that he's necessarily anticipating that she's going to start sleeping around or get knocked up or, God forbid, try to run off and get married in Scotland or even worse, not. And so I do read it in terms of something that's a little bit lighter and more gentle. And yet, because we know what's coming, there is a real edge to it, which I think is hard, hard to ignore. What are you thinking about it? Yeah, I mostly think he's kidding. But the idea of sending off your child to humiliate herself rather than trying to parent her really does seem borderline evil to me. Especially to then mock Lizzie, right? Lizzie is like, yes, I'm worried for Lydia, but I'm also worried for the rest of us. And he just mocks her concerns as well. And I think that it starts as this joke that he kind of doesn't care what happens to them after he dies. But now it's like he doesn't even care what happens to them while they're alive. Lizzie is saying to him, she's not just going to ruin her own life. She can ruin ours. And he's like, oh, did someone not love you as much as you wanted them to? I don't know. I have a really hard time taking this lightly when he is being so willingly obtuse. I think that at the heart of this is something that I'm hearing as a parent that is a little complicated. I mean, part of this is sort of, you know, as the nuns would say, how do you solve a problem like Maria, right? When you have some outlying free spirit, what do you do? Can you keep them at home and actually have them blossom into themselves in a more mature way? Or do they have to go off somewhere and have some experience that then allows them to come back as mature women? There is, I think, something 
that is grounded in notions of what adolescence needed. And I think mm-hmm. many people believe that adolescents still need, which mm-hmm. is the ability to go out into the world and make your own mistakes, to express yourself, to fall if you fall, especially if you're someone who's a little bit more of a wild child, you know. Mm-hmm. And this book came into the world not terribly long after Mary Wollstonecraft's treatise on the education of daughters, which was the first time that people really thought about how to parent and teach daughters actively. And there was a lot of emphasis on libertinism in Wollstonecraft's own life and in the notion that girls should have the same freedom as boys. So I think it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, I love that pushback. I guess I think I would like it more if he was like, look, hopefully she has a great time and sows her wild oats and embarrasses herself a little and learns. But the two options he gives us is that she'd either be humiliated or validated so much that she'd be so ridiculous to lock her up. I don't know. He's sending her off to be broken or saying she'll return to us so whole that I will break her. And again, like, I know he's kidding and he's glib, but I just feel like I get tired of all glibness when all it is is glibness. And with Mr. Bennett, I'm just not sure that there is anything other than this desire to be left alone. And he's just abdicating his power and responsibility to jokes. And he's even just like taking the one daughter he says he takes seriously. He's not even taking her seriously. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I do not think that he's an exemplary father in any way. And I think that at the heart of that is the fact that he doesn't have any respect for any of his children except Lizzie. I mean, it's a, it's a family in which there's so little respect in so few of the relationships. And obviously, he is the most archly removed from all of them that it does feel like the possibility of her learning something is is sort of a fringe benefit to getting her out of the house. I think that's my problem with this scene, is this is the scene in which we find out that he doesn't actually even respect Elizabeth. This thing that he's like, oh, my Lizzie, at least I have Lizzie. He's full of shit, right? Lizzie says, if you were aware of the very great disadvantage to us all, which must arise from Lydia's unguarded, imprudent matter, nay, which has already arisen from it, And he responds, already arisen? What, has she frightened away some of your lovers? And like just completely demeans her very sincere point. You know, like you're not leaving us with a dowry. You're not leaving us with a house. And like now you're not even letting us have reputations. Like you're taking everything from us. And this soapbox that he has that like he loves his not ridiculous daughters is just complete bullshit in this scene. He mocks her for her concern about her and her sister's entire well-being. There's something that brings Lizzie and her dad together and how they approach the world that is a little prickly here, which is, you know, Lizzie chooses not to tell about Wickham. And the way that she expresses that to Jane is that we may laugh at their stupidity and not knowing it before. The, the person who she's laughing at, whose stupidity she's laughing at in terms of the, the discovery of how bad Wickham is going to be is 
no less than her sister, and in fact, no less than their entire family. So the fact that that impulse to laugh at other people's stupidity instead of going the extra mile in terms of care and sharing information, this is something that she's clearly inherited from her father. I would also just argue that she's like justifying after the fact a decision that she's already made, right? The text tells us it's not her business to share because Mr. Darcy would not want it to get out because it would ruin Georgiana. And so it's not that she's like, oh, it'll be so fun to not tell anyone. It's this like actual tremendous sense of integrity. I just think there's like an aggregate in this conversation of all the reasons why. Jane is like, it's possible he's changed. Lizzie is like, I don't think that's it. But I have my own reasons of wanting to protect Georgiana because I want to protect Darcy. And then she's like, also, it'll be fun to laugh at everyone, which is, of course, a shitty thing. But I also think belies the fact that Lizzie does not understand how dangerous Wickham is at this point. Lizzie now doesn't respect Wickham, but she thinks he's like kind of an asshole who did one really bad thing. But I don't think she sees him as someone who's just like willing to destroy lives, you know, carte blanche. There was something specific about Georgiana. That I think is also just like part of her calculations. And like, maybe we don't know the full extent of Mr. Bennett's calculations. You know, maybe he's like, it'll actually be better to separate Lydia and Kitty. And, you know, the one thing he says in his monologue in his defense is like, Colonel Foster is a good guy. Like, he's going to be looking out for Lydia. So it's not like he's sending Lydia to Brighton at 16 all on her own and is like, here's a pound and best of luck to you. But I do think that there's like a different of degree of... Lizzie making this joke, but having a really righteous reason to not share the information. And I think that an undercurrent here is this historical moment in which people are trying to figure out how much girls need to be protected. Mm -hmm. Coming off of a time when girls were less protected. This is, you know, a a constricting of, of mores. You know, it's a response to the fear of Frenchiness coming into <laughs> England. And I think that There's a a tension here. It's like it's walking a line between denial and negligence and then an abundance of caution. And I think we're still very much stuck in this place where we don't know what to do about girls in the world even now. How do we deal with the threats of the world? How do we deal with people learning these things on on their own and protecting themselves on their own? Where do we need to make safe havens? What stories do we tell? What privacy do we protect? And it is certainly dealt with in a glib way here, but I think that these are real questions. Oh, there's still questions I have about myself. When am I like, someone step in and protect me? And when am I like, no, no, I've got it. Like, I think that these are just really live questions. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
While we're in this conversation with Jane and Lizzie, I wonder if it's worth us taking a close look at the sentence we wanted to pay attention to this week. So Jane and Lizzie are having this conversation about whether or not to tell the wider Meriden community about what Wickham did to Georgiana. And in this conversation, Jane is saying like, no, there has to be a reason that Wickham did this. Darcy must have misunderstood. And, you know, she's just like always wants to make it so everyone is unimpeachable. And Lizzie says to Jane, you never will be able to make both of them good for anything. Take your choice, but you must be satisfied with only one. There is but such a quantity of merit between them, just enough to make one good sort of man. And of late, it has been shifting about pretty much. For my part, I'm inclined to believe it all Mr. Darcy's, but you shall do as you choose. And it's a fascinating sentence that like there's this finite amount of merit in this dynamic. Like you get 100 points of merit and like that's it. And there aren't 105 and Mr. Darcy is 98 of them. So make your decision, Jane. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this, but what do you make of it? Oh, I want to hear your thoughts and feelings about it. I feel like these are these are questions that you have wrestled with your whole life and that this is such a distillation of of these things that that I don't know. I, you are the person I want to hear on this. I mean, just the idea. It, it's funny because Lizzie is making fun of Jane here, but Lizzie is being ridiculous, right? The idea that there is only a certain quantity of merit that can be between them. And that there isn't the possibility for misunderstanding or one person's bad choice leading to another person's bad choice and there being a spiral of bad decisions being made. It's just not the way the world works. It's the way a cynic's idea of the world works. And yet, Lizzie is correct that like one of them is more wrong. There, there is a truth here and they can't both be telling it because they have stories that are in direct opposition to one another. But I don't think that she's right that there's only a certain amount of merit between the two of them. That is a very scarce mindset that like there's only a certain amount of good men in the world and we all have to be competing for them. Well, and of course, there's something that feels so deeply, almost politically and certainly morally conservative about the notion of just an absolute good and an absolute bad, right? That you're one or the other, that there are heroes and villains. And as we know, you know, Wickham is perhaps Austen's most villainous character. And there's much less nuance in him than in almost any other character that she writes. And it, I think it's tricky to, to start a book with your romantic hero as so, so disliked and so possibly a baddie in so many senses, and then turn him into this sort of, you know, prince on the white horse. And so... How do you get there? You need a foil. You need badness to be the foil to him so that his goodness can shine through. And I think that's very much what she's done with Wickham and Darcy. And it's almost like this scarcity, this this metric of merit is she's explaining to us how she's built these two characters out. And in some ways, it's absurd. And in other ways, it's kind of the most classic dynamic in literature. Yeah. And what I do love about it is that Lizzie is like, dude, pick a side, right? Because like, 
one of the things to me that is most frustrating in the world is someone who wants to sit on the fence about everything. I'm just like, sure, but there isn't always a fence. There's a there's a liar and there's a truth teller here. And like, you have to decide who. It's this just the language of like goodness and merit that seems to me to be imprecise in this, where she's like, one of them is going to have all the goodness and all of the merit. And like, you have to pick. And it doesn't leave open the possibility that like, why did Wickham hate Darcy? And again, doesn't excuse, you know, what he did with Georgiana and also like doesn't negate the fact that Wickham lied and therefore is untrustworthy. But there's just like a real lack of precision of thought here where I think that we're seeing like Lizzie's just still going to be prejudiced. She's just going to be prejudiced for Mr. Darcy now. She's changing a lot, but she's still her. She's just switching sides. <laughs> Right. And of course, she's not telling people about Wickham now to protect Darcy. Right. Which I think is a muddy choice. And she's not telling Jane about Bingley, which I think is a muddy choice. Like what Mm -hmm. we do around the sort of ethics of information in these situations and how much we make those choices based on our perceptions of who we think we're protecting or exposing. That I think is so much of what... I don't know what what's roiling under these chapters in some way. I mean, the, the choice to not talk about Wickham with the family is is such a gun on the mantelpiece. And there's something inherently simple about her in many ways, which Austin keeps saying, you know, Lizzie didn't want to overthink things. Lizzie just wanted to be OK with things. She kind of makes these these choices without perseverating about things that are really worth, I think, wringing one's hands about. I mean, she does it to herself, too, right? In the last chapter that we read for today, she is like, I do not want to go to Pemberley. I cannot run into Mr. Darcy. I would rather tell my aunt that he proposed than risk running into him. But let me do everything I can to avoid telling my aunt. And so she asks essentially like a chambermaid for town gossip is Mr. Darcy in town And it will turn out to be bad information. And so keeping the secret from Mrs. Gardner proves, I mean, it works out in the end, but it does prove to be a strategic error. You know, she holds a lot of information very close to the vest. And I think that if she were to say to her father, look, Bingley was convinced not to propose to Jane because of Lydia's behavior and was able to say to Mrs. Gardner, Mr. Darcy just proposed and I rejected him. It will look really bad if I show up, right? Like Mrs. Gardner will let her stay behind. She has a real penchant for keeping information to herself. And of course, the other person who's not communicating very thoroughly is Lydia. Lydia goes off to Brighton saying, I'll write you all the time. And she barely writes anything. And then when she does it, something to Kitty with like everything redacted. So no one actually knows what's happening. And I think that what it means to to sort of lose that line of communication is indeed what's going to be the the fatality here in many ways. Lydia is communicating a lot just with Kitty, who is a secret keeper, right? Which is like such a lovely little moment. We think of Lydia and Kitty as like off being annoying together, but they are their own Jane Austen, Cassandra Austen thing, right? Like if we believe that Cassandra burnt Jane's letters or at least cut out the private parts of Jane's letters, Kitty has all of this information and Lydia has asked her to keep it a secret and she is keeping it a secret and people are asking to see it. And she's like, nope, too much is underlined. And so like, that's a nice little moment of 
a hint of the intimacy between Kitty and Lydia. Especially because Kitty would have every right to friggin' hate her sister right now <laughs> for getting to I take know. this trip when she hasn't. You think that she would just like out her and trash her name through town. But again, having people who have not been around the block keeping each other's secrets is both, you know, the requirement of teenage years and also its greatest danger. Yes. Oh, it's true. Okay, so with that in mind, here's something I've been wondering about. I'm curious what you think about this, which is, you know, Lizzie tells us, or Austin tells us on behalf of Lizzie, that Lizzie has always understood that her parents have a terrible marriage, that they have nothing but contempt for each other, no respect for each other at all, and therefore they have modeled something that is just horrific. And I think that we feel really the weight in these chapters of how formative it is to have a terrible model of marriage. I wonder if you think that that's something that can be corrected within the education of daughters that is possible in Jane Austen's England? And how much of sort of like the original sin of this family is this bad marriage that Lizzie's been aware of her whole life? Yeah, I do believe in the human capacity to imagine differently. But more to the point, I think Lizzie, I mean, this trip with the gardeners is really interesting, right? The way that she meets Darcy again and that they are going to fall in love is not while in sort of any meta conversation about her parents. It is going to be in the literal shadow, like they are going to be walking behind Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. And so I think that even just like moments that hint at it can really open up our minds, right? Even just to the possibility that this is not the only way to be married. I, I feel like another title for this novel could be like my year of learning, right? Like this is a year where she is like suddenly seeing the world very differently. She's seeing that like Bingley was not just a fop who was flaky. Like there was more to Bingley than she thought. And Jane really did care for Bingley. Like I feel like she's learning a lot about the world and like not always to trust her own instincts, right? Lizzie seems as though the way that she's looking at her parents' marriage is not like, well, dad's doing the best that he can, considering that he's married to a ridiculous woman. She's like, God, they're both just sort of awful to each other. And like, to me, that is enough to show that I think she's going to try for something different. And of course, in this sort of coming of age process, this rage that one feels towards one's parents for giving them like a screwed up family of origin is inherent in all of that, right? Yeah. Even if that's not what you believe about your family for the rest of your life, there is probably a moment during this period of life in which you feel it very, very acutely and that you feel furious about it. And I feel like she's really bringing us into that, that clear-eyed anger where you see your parents as people and you see what they've done to you. And you then choose who you're going to be in relationship to that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you just wonder about, right, there's just this two-paragraph, like, bullet at the beginning of Chapter 42 about, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett's marriage. And that respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever. Mr. Bennett fell in love with Mrs. Bennett because she, she was pretty. She was young and pretty. And like, that was it. Like, I think that you find out just like 
how deeply unhappy this marriage is, that it's not just publicly unhappy, but that Lizzie's understanding is that it is a great disappointment. And I mean, I feel like Austin is telling us all that a marriage to be a good marriage requires respect, esteem and confidence. And this is that was not in the cards for them. And without that, it doesn't matter how hot someone is. It doesn't matter how much chemistry you have. It doesn't matter how thrilling that is. It's going to burn out. And she she describes it burning out. And then she describes sort of the intergenerational weight of that. You know, Lizzie tells us she'd never felt as so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage, nor have ever been so fully aware of the evils arising from so ill-judged a direction of talents. It's sad. It is sad. And I think it's a great rebuttal for anyone who doesn't care for Austen's novels that is just about marriage. Because it seems to be saying a bad marriage can ruin a life, right? And so people picking each other is actually a super important decision. And so let's show you all of the ways that people pick each other and all of the ways that society forces them to pick people who they might not want to pick and all of the miscommunications that can happen to keep two people apart. And I love that she's taking this question seriously because she's like, who you're going to spend your life with is how you spend your life. And it matters. And then it matters for generations to come. I mean, this is the antecedents of Lydia's downfall right here. So Lauren, next week, one chapter, because we're off to Pemberley. Pemberley, baby. We're off to Pemberley. What do we wear? What do we wear to Pemberley? (laughs) Spoiler alert. The chambermaid has old information. Darcy is there. There's something that feels so contemporary about Lizzie's assessment of her parents, how they've shaped their daughters, Lydia in particular, through, you know, modeling this contempt and permissiveness. I mean, Lizzie says, you have made Lydia this way, and now it's going to wreck the rest of us. And in many ways, I feel like Lizzie's remarks to her father could be playing out in any living room in America or anywhere else right now. So I'd love to get some perspective on what this meant within Regency and Georgian England from someone who who understands parenting and family relationships in Austin's era. So here's who I want to call the day. Joanne Bajado, who's a historian of Georgian and Victorian Britain, who specializes in just this sort of thing. In fact, she wrote a book called Parenting in England, circa 1760 to 1830, Emotions, Self-Identity, and Generation. So let's get her on the phone. Hello. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Joanne. Thank you for joining us. So I'm so curious, you know, what is informing Lizzie's sense of how her parents have made all of the Bennett girls? Well, parents were really, really important in forming their children in every way from their health through to their emotional and psychological development. So She's right in many ways. She would think that her parents 
were responsible for the way that their children turned out. And that's absolutely what parents were told through all of the child guidance, you know, literature that was available. And there was a booming bit of of print culture. So there were lots of specialists telling parents how they should rear their children. But also, interestingly, in this sort of period, probably focusing more on what parents should be themselves. So it includes what you should feed your children and, you know, what clothes they should wear and how much exercise they should have, because a healthy body is important. But it's also about how you set them on the right pathway to virtue, to the right moral values, to, of course, what we'd say of as appropriate gender behaviour, to conforming to the right kinds of class and gender ideals. But very often that's about what they should be like as parents and they should be exemplary parents. And so they're going to be quite critical of their parents if they feel that something's gone wrong along the way. I know you've written a lot about marriage during this period. I'm curious if there was in the literature an emphasis on what a parent's marriage should look like to form who their kids were and what they should expect from their own partnerships. Yes, that's really interesting because to be married, generally speaking, was to be expected to be parents. So uh, yes, there is an overlap. I think that the ideal is to have a good marriage. And what is a good marriage? Well, a good marriage would be in a patriarchal society, a man who has um, authority over his dependents, he provides for his dependents, and that could be any social class that we're talking about, just in different forms. A man who is kind and compassionate, so not tyrannical or cruel, but also able to exert mastery when necessary. And a wife who is a helpmeet, who is supportive, who in some ways works alongside her husband. So I guess you can see there where the Bennets perhaps don't really fit into that ideal. When reading how Lizzie approaches Mr. Bennett and saying, this is who you are and and what you made, there's something that feels so psychological about it. There's something that feels so, you know, I was going to say 21st century, but it's it's also very 20th century. Am I projecting that? Is there is there just something that feels like it's far more grounded in in the sort of advice given in conduct literature than in some felt psychology here or some some analytical perspective? It's interesting, isn't it? Because this is probably the period when I think we are in the inheritors of the idea of childhood that is born at this particular time. So classically, this turn of the 18th into the early 19th century, it's kind of the culmination of new ways of thinking about childhood that have been developing through the 18th century from John Locke through to Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the, you know, gets translated into English in I think the 1760s. John Locke says that a baby is born as a, as a blank wax tablet and, you know, you, you the parent, society, etc., will imprint upon that. So obviously parenting becomes hugely important. But you get to the Romantic period and, you know, that sense of literally in the, in the, the sort of famous poem of the, the child is, is trailing clouds of glory. You know, it's a remarkable sort of phase. And I think we've, we are the inheritors of that. We, we see and still see childhood as something that is, is truly distinctive. We think also of the 20th century as the time of sort of, you know, the teenager and that that development phase. But again, you can see that, you know, actually the period of, of adolescence as distinctive from childhood. You know, it's another distinctive phase that people are making their way through. So 
I think in a sense, if it seems familiar, it, it is because it, it, it is. This is when these ideas are the, when the ferment of these ideas are being worked through. It's no surprise or coincidence that this is the period of time when, when you know, quite soon people are starting to think about children in working and working conditions for children. All of those sort of phenomena of the 19th century where children's well-being is being thought about in, in particular ways. And again, all of those things seem quite familiar to us. I think it's so typical to blame the mother for everything. And I think that Lizzie, and I suppose Austin through Lizzie, just sort of an exemplary job of laying it on, on fathering as well. And yet, of course, you know, I think we can read this as Lizzie isn't quite as marked because she's Mr. Bennett's favorite, whereas Lydia is is the true favorite of Mrs. Bennett and the inheritor of the problem of Mrs. Bennett as well. And I, I just wonder where the onus was sort of put at the time. How much were mothers blamed for everything? Well, this is a period where there is a, a little bit more of a comparative sense of, of emotional investment for fathers and mothers. And fathers are meant to be directly involved with the upbringing of their, their children. So, I mean, that's what Lizzie is, is getting at here. Nonetheless, mothers are always... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who've jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com. Blame. So I think that, you know, if you read again the sort of literature on this, there will often be a direct warning to mothers not to be overindulgent, not to, you know, dress up their daughters, give them inappropriate food, let them do what they want. So there is a little bit of, of a, a gender imbalance there. But that said, at the same time, Lizzie is not wrong. Fathers were also given a, a very important role in that kind of guidance that children are meant to have right from infancy onwards. And that would be around training, instruction, and of course, discipline. Right. And of course, the absence of that is inherent here. 
I mean, I, you know, reading this book and thinking of it in many ways as Lizzie's coming of age tale and what it means to separate from the parents, to to define oneself, et cetera, it does feel like in many ways this this book is ultimately a book of her liberation, of the fact that you don't have to be trapped in the models that raised you, that you can see and create a different way through some sort of trust in the self and, of course, incredible luck, I think. I'm curious if if you read that from a historic perspective into this story about what it means to separate and develop. Yes, it's interesting because when you were saying that, I was immediately thinking, ah, but of course, the Bennets are bad in some respects. You know, they're poor quality parents. So she's not really freeing herself. She's just actually going to follow surely the right path by, by being a good wife, mother in the future. I mean, who knows? So... In that sense, it's quite conformative. You know, she 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 learns about herself, I guess, in the process of the novel, and that's important. And 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 it is important to hear what probably seemed like a very authentic young female voice doing that. I mean, that's new, and in, in that, I'd say that in that sort of accessible way. So it is, in a sense, the development of a young woman who is able to make mistakes, and that's interesting. You know, that sense that adolescence you know, something which is kind of puberty to the point of marriage is a process of kind of physiological, emotional development towards maturity and about the potential to make a few mistakes within that, as long as they're not major mistakes like Lydia's, and to become, you know, the person that society wants you to be. So the question of whether Lizzie, as I say, is breaking free or conforming is, I guess, open to debate. But the way that she does that, I think, is what's so interesting. Joanne, I'm so grateful for your wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. If you love the show, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It is how we find new listeners and we want new listeners. We love you, but we also want more of you. We're a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks as always to our Jane Bennett level patrons. Viscount Elise Kennegrottenham of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Miriam Burstein, Susan Zlotnick, and Joanne Beggiato for talking to us, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons.